In this episode of the Zeitgeist Pulse, it's Jessica Anderson, or how she's better known to 700,000 people as Jess, or better yet, Mother Runner. There are plenty of things I can say about Jess, but to be honest, she is actually doing a much better job at this. This is her Twitter intro. I am a devoted mom of three beautiful girls. I am a stepmom to two amazing grown adult children. I am married for the second time to my life partner, running partner, my everything. I am a part-time employee at a local public elementary school, and I love my job of working at the front desk and being a part of that community. I am a active person. I love to run. I love to work out, um, regularly attend Orange Theory Fitness. Um, I have previously been a personal trainer. I've worked in billing and insurance. After graduating high school in 1999 in Newport News, I went on to college with the hopes to be a photojournalist one day because that was my dream. And a year later, I dropped out to be a wife at age 20 and later a mom at age 22. Plans change. Second pregnancy at seven months, I finally got to walk and get my degree, associate's degree in business. And it wasn't the plan. And yet I have done more growing and changing and learning the last 10 years than I think I ever did in the first 30. And with that being said, I want to tell you that I will be running for the House of Delegates in the state of Virginia, District 71. And I would love your support any way you can support me. And I also understand that my incumbent, Amanda Batten, is a lovely person. Um, I've heard great things about her personally and her personality and how she engages with the community, but I've also seen her voting record. And it is not right for Virginians and it is not right for this district. And we need someone that's going to protect women's rights, protect public education, and protect our children. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to help educate and communicate along the way. So this is my resume. And I think that what we've seen in recent history, your resume needs to really represent who you are. This is me with all the flaws and all the room to grow. So thanks guys. And here she is, Jess Anderson. <laughs> thanks so much for coming on. This is the first episode and you are breaking essentially into the scene here with the Pulse. Thanks so much for taking time for us. Yes, I'm so glad you had me. Do you know how I actually uh, found out about you? No, tell me. Tin for a hat. It was, <laughs> it was your tongue-in-cheek comedy, essentially. I know. Um, on TikTok, which we haven't done in a while. So obviously plans have once again changed a little bit. <laughs> um, this is how I really noticed you. And of course, it was an immediate follow. You come across as so approachable, so honest, so raw, so vulnerable. What's the audience feedback to that? Um, mostly positive. Um, you know, it's funny. I, I, I joked when I first decided to run for office. Um, I, I looked at doing it in Congress, congressional run last, last year around this time. It didn't work out, which is fine. I think state is actually a better place for me, a better fit, a better opportunity for me to do more at the local level. But with that being said, um, one of the first things I had said when I offered to run was, well, there's nothing that anybody can say on the internet or in a TV commercial about me that I haven't already told the world about myself. Um, so I do feel like I'm an open book. Um, I'm very guarded. Uh, I don't, try to show a lot of emotion per se, you know, um, I don't obviously put my family front and center of my, uh, political stage or my TikTok stage, but you know, they're amazing. They're my supporters. They're my everything. Like I explained in that video. Um, 
But a vast majority of the people that follow me, that engage with my content, I'm very grateful, are positive, are thankful, call me a breath of fresh air, enjoy my, you know, as you said, tongue in cheek, my condescending occasional tone. Um, <laughs> you know, I have tried to tone it down. I do, I do deliver things with a smile. I've always been like that. Uh, and yeah, I just, I like the opportunity to educate individuals um, online and um, in my everyday life. In fact, um, fun story right before I came here, I actually had coffee with somebody. I'm not going to specify who, but local person. And um, we do not have the same political views on a lot of things. Um, love her to death, but we just don't. And surprisingly, we've had a lot of conversations, particularly about, around reproductive rights. She has a very religious mindset. So it's very hard for her to kind of get past that pro-life narrative that you see always like, you know, fed into the church. Mm -hmm. And she told me, she goes, um, after our last couple of conversations, I've decided that while I can be personally pro-choice for myself and my decisions moving forward, she's like, um, I don't want government to have any control over women's reproductive rights. And I was like, floored. And she gave me a hundred dollar check to boot, uh, for my campaign, which I was just like, wow, like that, that's what, you know, especially I think the last six months to a year on TikTok has been about for me. Um, trying to inform, trying to engage, trying to be authentic, trying to show evidence-based information um, and bring people maybe not all the way over to the side where I have come from, like me, but maybe a little closer to the middle, maybe a little more willing to hear voices from opposing views. Um, sure. So yeah, I think that's what it's really been about for me. So this is where I think it gets interesting because in the social media sphere, we find a lot of vitriol and you sitting together with somebody who has opposing views. So we still have room for civility. Is that? I, I believe mean? so. I mean, it's, you're not going to sit down with someone who is a right wing extremist. That's just screaming QAnon nonsense. No, right. like that's, that's not, <laughs> that's not feasible. But there are people, there are people that feel like the Republican Party is leaving them. There are people that have always been kind of on the fence or apolitical and less likely to talk publicly about politics to people that are kind of being forced to at this point because we become so, you know, partisan and so polarized. Um, and those are the times that you need to find those people and engage in those conversations, because if we don't, we're going to continue down the path that right. we're on right now. And again, this, there's going to be people that, yeah, you're not, you're not, there's no reach across, um, but there's going to be people that are willing to engage. And I've, I've had debates, I've had debates with people that a lot of people are like, that's an extremist. And I'm like, but we had a civilized conversation. And I always, my takeaway from those conversations is, is I might not change the person that I'm talking to's mind, but maybe 50, 60, 70, a thousand followers of theirs that are in that conversation listening those might be the people that I'm reaching. Those might be the people that got an opportunity to hear somebody outside of their echo chamber that maybe made a little more sense to them than they thought before the conversation. If that so you're leapfrogging, sense. basically. Yeah, yeah. Which I suppose makes sense. So in, in terms of campaigns, so you tried once already. This is your second run at it. So nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. Obviously, different positioning, perhaps a little bit of different messaging. What are the sacrifices, actually, from a personal level to run such a campaign? Um, so I'm learning more and more about that every day. <laughs> um, you have to be present. You have to show up at the events. You have to be on the calls. You have to, you know, knock on the doors. You have to get the petition signatures. You, it, it's time. It's, it's time. That's going to take away from the 
already existing life that you've created. Um, so, you know, I still have two kids at home. I have um, one that's in high school, one that's in elementary school. Um, I have a husband that we are avid runners. Like I said in my video, we're runners. We run races almost every weekend. We were very uh -huh. active. You know, we I exercise at least five to six days a week on minimum, um, sometimes every day. And, uh, and for me, that's also for my mental health, um, really. But, you know, it's finding balance, but also being able to be there. Uh, perfect example, I had an event, local event that um, the Chamber of Commerce, our local Chamber of Commerce was putting on that was going to have candidates or not candidates, incumbents that just finished the General Assembly session, talk and answer questions that were submitted by the public. And one of the people on the panel was my opponent. And this was an opportunity for me to submit a question, be there and have her, her answer, her response on video. How did that go? And she answered like a politician. Um, she answered wrong, but she answered like a true politician. Um, so she still answered wrong, but she she did a good job of trying to weave her way around the the, the question. Um, but but like that meant me getting up at four thirty in the morning, working out at five a.m., getting home, showering, getting myself presentable, taking my youngest daughter to my mom, who is amazing and and was willing to take her to school for me, so that I could be in a seat at eight a.m ready to listen to this panel start that went on for the next two hours. So this that's just an example of kind of like you you have to do some give and some take and some and some help from your village. And I'm very thankful I have a village. I have a husband that's very able to help me with the kids. I have a mom that's local. I have actually my former in-laws are still local. You know, my kids still have their dad and their you know the picture that they get to see every other weekend. So we have we have our village. We have friends and family. Um, and I'm, I'm grateful for that, but yeah, there's definitely some give. Um, it's definitely, you know, it takes a toll. I gotta, I gotta remind myself sometimes like reel it back in. Yeah. Um, you know, there's all these little things, especially as a, this is really my first time running, like really getting into the heat of it and like seeing the things you got to buy and the things mm -hmm. you got to do and the things you got to, you know, um, you got to hire people, you got to buy software, you've got to buy, buy things from the state to even run. You got to pay a fee to run. Like, so you know, all those little things add up. And that's why I think we've created a, a system that makes it very hard for everyday people like me, you know, a receptionist at a front office in a public school to run for office. And I, I think my driving force is to prove let's change that. Like, let's, let's, let's do it different. So inevitably, it does take a team and it takes a team for the long haul, because this is not just an yeah. event that happens on a weekend and it's like a race and all said and done, right? So this is long yeah. preparation. Training. This is a marathon. This exactly. is a marathon. This is not a 5K. This is not a 200 meter sprint. This is a this is a marathon. How are they handling it? And how are you um, handling it with them? Okay. Okay. My, I mean, my husband's great. Like he, he, he gets it and he, you know, he's, he's worked, he's a full-time worker. He's, he, he's a hard worker and he, he sees me just, you know, I'm working like, this is now my work. This is part of my job now. Um, you know, I think my kids, I just have to make sure that it goes back to balance. You know, there's like two nights a week now that I'm usually on a call for like an hour. And so that's me like saying, Hey, okay, I'm doing this right now, but when we're done with this, let's go over there and play the Wii for like an hour or let's play dominoes or let's go read a play. I just have to find a way to kind of compensate and, and create that time um, to make them feel like, hey, mom's got a lot going on and she's doing really great big things, but we're still important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, you know, especially for my younger one, because at that age, we've had a rough couple of years with COVID. Mental health has not been great for anybody. I mean, that's a, that's a nationwide global situation um so yeah it's 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 a creating that balance 
you know, and, and doing, and doing right by them, but you know, I'm doing this for them too. And I think they, I think they see that. So suddenly you find yourself in a position where beyond your already originating discipline, you need to compartmentalize and become much more strategic and deliberate. Yes. Yes. I think that would thank God I'm a type A Scorpio or this would not be possible. (laughs) I think, I think that is really a good takeaway for most people who would consider to run because it's not just a solo effort. You need a team and you need discipline and deliberation and and planning. But since you did just mention COVID, uh, let me jump to one of the political questions, if you will, such as uh, obviously everybody is still kind of reeling from the COVID pandemic, trying to recover in a variety of meaningful ways. Certainly also something that uh, is concerning Virginia. Now, if we add the social justice issue, social justice issue, I'm going to have to edit that one out. Um, (laughs) How do do you actually plan to address uh, essentially those two issues, recovery and social justice, which are usually conjoined, but also uneven in Virginia? Um, You know, I think right now the biggest blowback from COVID is mental health. Um, We created a, we took an environment that was already kind of um, going the direction of being hyper on social media, not engaging with people within everyday society. And then we threw a pandemic in the mix where we forced people to further isolate from society, be at home, constantly being connected versus connected. Um, So that's a mental health crisis toll. And so we're going to need to see, I think, starting at the education 11 K through 12, we need to have more guidance counselors in place. We need more resources available in the school system um, that are giving people some more one-on-ones, taking that time to bring them out to small groups and really focus on not only the educational aspect that they've lost, but the social aspect that they've lost, like creating and helping them create in relationships. Um, That's going to come down to budgeting, which is in my position that I'm trying to, you know, achieve part of my job. Our legislators are going to decide the entire state budget, how that is allocated, how those funds can benefit society. So we need to be funding far better than we are public education and the mental health element. That's kind of the the subset of that, both in the school system and in the um, in society. Um, And I'll give you an example of that. Uh, The current budget that came out from the last session was allocating uh, just around five, what was it? $30 million for police funding in our district, not the state, just our district that I'm addressing. And only 8 million to a project called the Marvin Project, which is basically a 988 call versus a 911 call for mental health crises or suicide concern, suicide prevention. Now, the problem with that is we already have an established police force. So we're dumping $30 million into them, which I'm not, you know, this is not a defund the police moment, Um, but we're putting $30 million into an already established, you know, program and system that's in place. And then we're only putting $8 million into a program that is not fully established, that's trying to build, that's trying to get people on board, that's trying to create a foundation to help people in this society. And then I go to the actual police officers in my district and I say, hey, can you just give me like a rough estimate? What are the number of calls percentage wise that you're getting that's mental health related or mental health crisis related? And they're telling me over 60%. So that makes me go back and say, so you're getting 60% of your calls Mm -hmm. that need to be allocated to probably this division over here that only got $8 million of a $38 million budget. So this is, it all links back to this budgeting that we need to be allocating funds where they're going to be most beneficial for society. And that's going to also come into like the social justice and the equity, you know, equity and education. If we don't have resources in the school 
to make small groups, to take these kids that are clearly having um, learning learning concerns, are not on level with their peers, and giving them some one-on-ones, giving them some small great groups, um, giving them those extra little you know additives that they need to get on level. Um, you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna see equity across the right. board. But yeah. in, in the in the budgeting perspective, are you looking to then rebalance the budget, or are you actually looking to find more money? I mean. It's a combination of both because Virginia is very fortunate that we always have a abundance of budget budgetary funds left over after they do the budget. I think right now we have like in the billions, not millions, billions in overage of of budgetary um, access funds that they can dip into if we ever had, let's say, an economic crisis or you know something just astronomically bad. We have money. We're paying our bills. Like we and and I am very thankful for that. I live in a state that is not a deficit. We are paying our bills. We are thriving for the most part, but we are just not um, prioritizing on the budget what needs to be prioritized. And if that means maybe adding a little extra funds to pad it, we have the capabilities of doing that. And that, if that means reallocating here and there and, and finding things like, hey, what are we getting for our buck? What's the best bang for our buck? What's the most beneficial to the people within the communities for our buck? Um, so it's going to be, I think, a combination of both. Mm -hmm. So as an as somebody who works in the education business, so to speak, at public schools, you see first yeah. how children are experiencing not just the pandemic, but also, of course, now the recovery and what strains are imposed upon them. Now, when you look at it from the perspective of measurable impacts and rebalancing, adding money to meaningful endeavors, I think everybody sort of has the same idea, right? So there are competing forces to come after the money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How are you going to see this through? Because clearly it's important to you. And yeah. how are you going to actually make sure that the point sticks for one, that you get the money? And then mm -hmm. most importantly, what's the measurable outcome supposed to be? So the, the real thing is, so the, the budget aspect is easier for me to do, you know, and when in this position, I can definitely, you know, argue the point, show statistics, show why we need to be funneling the money in. And, and at the same time, combating this like school choice narrative that is that is on the right, that is kind of peeking its head out every once in a while oh, yeah. here in Virginia, including my own opponent. She publicly advocated for just this past January front page news of our local local paper. So I need to show that it's not about, you know, we want to give parents choice to choose their schools. We want to make sure that the public schools we're providing are the highest quality. And so that's where you're going to have to, you know, show the statistics, show the reality of having the right number of educators, the right number of TAs, the right number of um, support staff, et cetera, is what's going to make our children thrive and have better access to better education. On the flip side of that, it also means being active locally. So not just in that position of power over the state, but showing up at those school board meetings, which I don't know if you know, but I've done regularly. I go to every school board meeting. I pretty much speak at every one of them, but showing up. Yes, showing up at the school board meetings, showing up at our local board of supervisor meetings, which also have some budgetary, um, you know, decision making over what happens to our public schools and saying, hey, I'm going to come in there and be like, I got you these dollars. I made sure those funds were here for you. So now you need to make sure that teachers are getting a pay, pay increase to incentivize not only new teachers, but retaining teachers. I mean, we need to see these, these this retention rate go up because that's where we're struggling right now. Mm -hmm. And we also need to see more TAs in the classroom. We need to be able to have a TA per grade level, not not a you know one TA per two grade levels. Or you know, right now I'm seeing two TAs spread out two two grade levels with roughly eight teachers. Each teacher has anywhere from eighteen to twenty four students. 
And so you think of a period of an eight hour day where 30 minutes is spent in recess, 30 minutes is spent in a lunch mm -hmm. and 45 minutes is spent in centers. So now we're talking about this condensed day of about six hours, six and a half classroom hours of um, time that two people have to spend with eight teachers and try to like get right. their, get their stuff done, you know, get their, they, I mean, they still have to do copies. They still have to do laminating. They still have to cut things out. They still have to create these projects for the students to do. And there's so much going on that teachers are by themselves for a long gap of time with this massive group of kids. And so they're working on a small group at a table, but they've got three other independent groups, roughly of four to five students that don't have someone kind of making sure they stay on task. And if we had more people hands-on, which again, comes back to the budget, comes back to the school board, assuring that these positions are not only paid, but you know being advertised and you know allocated for, um, then we're going to see better results from the education. Another thing that I talk about, it's on my website, by the way, is um, when they introduce standardized tests. And I absolutely support regular, um, you know, these tests that gauge, you know, growth. Like like three, three times a year, we do a math and kind of a comprehensive test, you know, do it in the fall when they've come in, fresh out of summer, see where they are do another one after the winter break when they've had two solid weeks off, see kind of where they're at, how much they've grown and do a final one at the, at the end of spring, you know, before they head out into the summer again. Those are great for doing some gauge markers on like, let's make sure the teachers are, are, you know, doing their job, the kids are grasping the information, but let's not have an entire curricula based on this end all be all test that's basing whether or not you have accreditation, basing whether or not you have financial funding from the state, basing whether or not you know, you grade AYZ on the national stage, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're making this be standardized tests dictate how the curriculum goes. So teachers are teaching to test and retain short-term knowledge versus, versus teaching the kids how to learn to love. Let me love how to do learn. How you plan on changing that? I mean, that's kind of targeting standardized testings at the state level, which is going to be getting, getting in contact with the Virginia Department of Education mm -hmm. and having some real you know, collaboration with them. Um, I've had a I've had a lot of conversations with teachers, and mm -hmm. I think a lot of them feel this way. Like, no child left behind, which came out of you know the you know the Bush administration, was kind of the beginning of the end for public education. We're we're pushing kids through that aren't on level, that aren't where they need to be, and then we added these standardized tests that changed the whole way the curriculum was founded. Teachers weren't creating their own curriculum anymore. Like now they were given a curriculum and said, figure out how to get this section done by this time frame and this section done by this time frame. And this is starting at third grade. Like this isn't think, like middle and high school. This is like right out the gate, elementary school. But isn't the, isn't there in the challenge, if you will, that now many are using against the public school system, trying to drive towards charter schools because they yes. determine their own curriculum. So we are kind of cutting off our own feet there, so to speak. If exactly. We race towards a better education. So obviously there is significant need for change. Do you think they're going to listen? And if so, how you're going to, if not, how you're going to make them listen? I think that's the well, question. Yeah. I and I, I think right now um, we're kind of on the precipice um, of it's going to go one way or another. And I think that's not only a state and local situation, that's a national thing. I think, I think um, uh, Virginia and there's four other states. I'm trying to think New Jersey's one, Kentucky's one. Um, I'm trying to think of the other two. I think one might be Louisiana, but there's there's four states, um, including us, that have local and big state elections this November. Um, and those are what we call bellwether states. And they kind of set the tone 
tone for what the public is thinking, what the voters are thinking. Um, so I, I, I guess my, my thing is it's going to depend. Um, I like to think that we are going to flip the house back to blue. Um, I think people are very fearful of after the Dobbs decision and the fact that we've now seen from this recent General Assembly in the state of Virginia, they are absolutely going to introduce abortion bans in this state. The, the Republicans have shown their hand. They introduced four from zero tolerance to a 15-week ban. And that that's, that's going to be a big, I think, benefit to a lot of Democrats like myself running in the state to say, they've just let you know that they are on board with stripping of you of reproductive rights. That they are on board with tying the hands of healthcare providers in this state, like the other, you know, and Virginians don't want it by and large. And I think that because of that, we're going to get these numbers out this November. We're going to flip the house, and it's going to give us a little more power to do some good. So, so you're right. I, I, me by myself, um, I can get on the floor and argue my points all day long and, and show a million statistics why I've been doing that for two and a half years on this on, this, on TikTok. But if I if we don't get the numbers to actually get the votes. Yeah, it, it's going to be it's going to be the, the 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 marker for what what's going to happen in the future. I think every politician should have a whiteboard in there. Little <laughs> Katie <laughs> Porter for the win. Katie, Katie Porter, <laughs> the Katie Porter standard. Um, yes. So since you already segued over there, which is essentially where I wanted to go anyway, is access to health care and the impending imbalance that we are creating nationwide with health care, particularly as far as women's rights are concerned the um, access to abortion or any kind of reproductive rights with is great, which is greatly inhibited in most red states, particularly in the southern states. How is that going to be handled in Virginia broadly? And then how does it affect District 71? Yeah, um, I'm very, I, I will say on a whole, Virginia has, um, and if you don't know Virginia's history, the last probably about since 2006, 2008 timeframe, kind of right before pre-Obama, We've seen a lot of progressive movement at the state level in this state. And because of that, we've had a lot of protections um, for Medicaid and Medicare put in place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, we actually offered an extension on, um, it was called PEBT. So it was funding from the COVID relief, but then it was plugged into what they called pandemic EBT, which is food stamps. That's another word for food stamps. Um, and so, you know, even myself, like someone like me, got this PEVT because I had students in the school system and I had that all the way up until last summer. I mean, they were continuously um, making sure that we had those funds. Um, so I will say when it comes to healthcare, um, I do think by and large, even the moderate Republicans that we have in office, and we're seeing the partisanship show their hands. Like, like I said, this general assembly this year, I think really is making some Normal Republicans a little fearful because because uh, the uh, the partisan players came out and they were they were not they were they were making them look bad look really bad but regardless um, I do I do think that um, kind of protecting healthcare rights in this state is not going to be a huge battle but it's one that if we get a, even the remotely lackadaisy on it, it could flip very quickly um, so I think everyone. I, before we had this conversation, um, I had mentioned to you that um, we have 140 seats on the ballot, 100 in the House, 40 on the Senate. Every single General Assembly seat is on the ballot. There is not one person that has not got their head on the chopping block. Right. Um, and because of that, I am really fortunate to see people like me, regular people, teachers. Um, I believe it's not it's either at 50 percent or may even be over 50 percent of women who are running just in the House seats alone 
Um, so we're talking 50 to 50 plus women have put their name on a ballot, you know, to run this, you know, this November. Um, so I think all of those things are very much protected right now in Virginia, I guess is what I'm getting at, which I'm thankful for because of the progressive policy that led us up until the last, the most recent election, which we saw a little bit of a, a shift, a little bit of a, you know, fearful Republicans showing up a little better at those, those um, in-between elections because we have odd year elections that just people don't show up to. Um, and so I'm hoping that the shift and the concern that was brought forth, um, the partisan play players, um, the abortion bans introduced, um, the fact that they left the caucus, they left caucus this year without a budget confirmed. They're still working on the budget, which is unheard of. Now they did confirm what they called the skinny budget, which is not awful, but it's not the budget we want. It's not going to give our teachers the raises they deserve. It's so, you know, we're seeing how this partisanship that they've created right now is really making it hard for actual good legislation that most Republicans are on board with get passed and a budget that, you know, is just contentious. And if it doesn't get passed, that means Youngkin has a little bit of a say in what happens moving forward, which we don't want. Um, for obvious reasons, no. Um, <laughs> how is how is this going to affect healthcare in District 71, though? Um, I, so healthcare, that's what I was trying. So basically, we have a pretty robust Medicaid and Medicare system where we're at. Um, and right now, even with the skinny budget that they've they've um, put on the table, it looks like things like child tax credit is already going to be risen um, so that more people will have access to that, as well as um, ability to access things like EBT and healthcare at the state level. So if people are struggling financially, they're going to have greater access, even if they're now that those little markers that were previously there are going to go up, I think, about two thousand dollars per person and four thousand dollars per couple. Um, so that is something that, again, that's why I, said, I, I do feel like even in the worst, like we are not the worst of the worst. When you think of states like Florida and Louisiana and all these things just coming out, that's just wild. We have our fringe outliers that are definitely people that need to be gone. Um, but again, we've we've been very grateful to protect important things like healthcare in this state. Um, I definitely want to give better access, and you know, I you know, I think I think sadly, universal healthcare is going to have to be addressed on a national level and then trickle down to us in a state level. Um, so, in that respect, there's very little I can do in this position. Now, not to say in you know eight years down the road uh, that might be another option, but um, but right now, I just want to ensure that the plans that we have in place remain and that if we can give access to more people by increasing those numbers a little bit in regards to annual income, I'm I'm 100% on board with that. And that's going to, again, be budgetary. So reading your website, obviously, healthcare is the second piece that you're really passionate about. And I think most of us agree at this point that politics happens really at a local level. So you may not have direct influence, but I think you very much have influence upon the individual voter who does of course, vote for you, but then mm -hmm. also votes upwards, so to speak, and makes their opinion and their yes. choices heard. So from your perspective, how are you going to measurably impact what the local voter does in the upward stream to vote for a particular? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's definitely, that goes back to like saying, hey, like, I know that we have great access here in Virginia, but let's say, especially if we're talking, let's say we're talking to a parent of some kids, your kids right now, 
we're protecting your rights. We're protecting your healthcare rights. We're protecting your child's reproductive rights. We're making sure that Virginia is a safe haven. But what's going to happen moving forward when your daughter or son leaves college and they decide, I'm going to go live in Florida or I'm going to go live in Louisiana because maybe they got a job offer or opportunity or whatever the case may be, we can't protect their rights there. And if we're not voting for the right people in these congressional races at the federal level, both president and congresswomen and men, um, those things could get thrown out the window when your children, you know, move on to other adventures in other states that maybe aren't as well protected as Virginia. Um, so I think that's a real conversation that we could be having right now, every day, all day. Like, that's great that, you know, we want to make sure things are happening. We want to make sure that you're in tune with your local elections, your city councils, your board of supervisors, your sheriff, your, you know, uh, your shoot, your treasurer, like all of these things. These are vital, your state legislators. But we also need to understand that these federal votes moving forward, if they don't replicate your decisions now, these things can still be stripped, first of all, because there's still some things that we can lose at the state level because of national decisions. Like, let's not let's not pretend that's not a problem. But also the fact that if we want to protect our kids or our families or people that are living in other states that maybe don't have the same rights as us, we need people in federal positions to make sure that they do. And so I think that's crucial. Then would be a little bit time delayed, if you will, in a sense that when the next larger voting cycle comes around, so not just the state voting or the district voting cycle, to see how opinions have changed and what the statistics say, how many people have supported X of initiatives. So that would then truly be the measure of your success on a time delay. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's why they call us the bellwether state. But that's what Virginia is called. We're called the bellwether state because our elections that typically happen this time kind of kind of gauge how the federal elections are going to turn out. And that's that's been something that people have looked to us in New Jersey for years. Um, even after the presidential election, one of the two big races they were looking at was the governor's race here, Youngkin, and the governor's race in New Jersey. Um, traditionally, if a Democrat takes presidency, a Republican takes both of those seats. So Youngkin's win was actually not terribly surprising. And in fact, the margins being as close as they were, were kind of a bit of an, like an upset. But on the flip side, New Jersey went blue. That was a huge, that spoke volumes that people don't want to acknowledge. They were so like, see, Youngkin won, red wave. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, that's expected. That's if you look at the trends for the last, like, I think, 30 years going back in like the early 90, late 90s, that is commonplace for Republican governors to take those two seats after a Democratic president wins his election. So the fact, again, like this very close race between McAuliffe, who was an awful candidate, sorry, not sorry, he, whoever's campaign manager, fire him immediately. Um, but then and then the, and then the Jersey governor race going blue. That's I felt like that was um, something that made me a little hopeful for the future. You know what I mean? And again, the midterms, they expected all these polls said big red wave, this massive blowout. They didn't get the red wave. Yeah, it seems they barely got like a red dot. Measure. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And 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 but the thing is, when they did win the House by the slim majority, they still they went back on their message. Well, we still won. And, and so they have to find these little wins to try to convince their base, like we're the majority and they're not. And and I think every year we're seeing trends more and more showing that progressives are, are more in the norm. Um, our Gen Z's are growing up and voting. Um, you know, our alphas are gonna be right behind them and they are, I mean, I know my 11 year old, God help you all. 
Um, so like, um, you know, the, these people are coming up and by and large, they want to see change. They want to protect their environment. They want to make sure their reproductive rights, they want government out of their bodies and out of their homes and out of their public education. Um, you know, they, they're speaking up and, uh, and I'm, I'm for sure glad they're around and get to vote for me because this go around. <laughs> Yeah. So from from the perspective of when we look at Tennessee, for instance, Oklahoma, and of course, Florida, with the reduction in diversity, equity, inclusion principles and teachings and just simply the philosophy. And then the I would at this point say we can fairly call it a hunt on LGBTQ and BIPOC, which has all the markings of fascism. What does District 71 look like in terms of safety for LGBTQ, BIPOC, uh, and basically communities that are now being pushed out to the fringe and truly endangered? So we have pockets in Virginia that I would deem kind of like um, one of the one of our one of our counties that's very much fourth front, um, Louisa County. Uh, there was this big whole lie that was pushed by the right. Fox News pushed it. Um, you know, right wing. You know, you know, political pundits pushed it saying that a trans girl, a boy, um, had assaulted a girl in the bathroom. Well, come to find out, which wasn't released and announced till almost a year after the fact, and the mom finally got an opportunity to say her piece. But of course, at this point, you know, because our attention spans is about that of a goldfish. So, you know, that story's come and gone, and we already believe what we heard the first time. Um, but the mom was like, my son has never been trans. My son likes like different fashion and he wore like kilts and like cool, like that was his style. Mm -hmm. And that this guy, that his son, her son and this young lady had actually had a intimate relationship before this incident. Now the incident was an assault. Please do not, I don't want anyone to like misconstrue. What he did was deemed a, a assault and he was charged accordingly. And his mom also talked about the fact that he was dealing with some mental health issues because um, I guess there was another incident with another young lady, not in a bathroom, but another young lady. So this is something that, you know, but they used this story because of the way this young man dressed to be stylish, to be cool, to, to create a narrative, to create a, an excuse to target. And Young can use this story during his campaign to target trans women in bathrooms and trans women in sports, which he is still doing. He just did a town hall about this. So there are pockets in Virginia. Um, that are not safe, that, uh, that, that, um, that are, that do have people in those communities a little fearful and, and looking at neighboring counties and cities in their districts, like, Hey, make sure you guys are speaking up because what you do at the state level is going to hurt me right here in my town. Um, district 71, very thankful. We have an incredibly, um, loving environment for the LGBTQ plus community, um, I think by and large, we, we, you know, we have teachers and staff and children that are all members of that community. Um, I'm thankful that we, we have, you know, we have student teachers that have their, you know, LGBTQ flag in their room during Pride Month. We have celebration of BLM. Um, one of our kindergarten teachers, who is one of our Black teachers, um, she does an incredible job with Black History Month and just makes sure every single day they've got a new book, they've got a new person, they got a new, like, and we're talking about kindergarten. So I'm very fortunate that our district by and large is not seeing this very fringe kind of insane attacks that we're seeing, like you said, in Florida, especially Florida just makes me want to throw up. But, um, but, you know, we're not seeing that in my district, but I want to make sure that continues. Um, because we do have, you know, a conservative that's now um, representing 
the entire city, which is incredibly democratic and incre- a lot of our minorities there, a lot of our more um, vulnerable community are there. And they have now become part of, of my incumbent's district. It was not her district before. They had a Democrat you know, representing them. And I think that's going to be a great motivator to get a lot of these people that probably didn't participate as much in these elections because it was a pretty safe Democrat, you know, you know what I mean? Safe yeah, Democrat yeah. Um, election every every other year. And now it's not. Um, so I think I need to in those communities, especially these minority communities, these marginalized communities, these very lower socioeconomic communities in the city, go out to them and say, hey, I know so and so represented you before and you knew he was going to be there. But he's not that anymore. And you got her. And now you can tell you that she wants school choice. She wants to take money out of your schools. She wants to funnel into private education. I already know that she doesn't want to protect your reproductive rights. You know, I know that she sides on the side of Youngkin when it comes to probably trans issues and other issues that, you know, he's talking about on a public stage. And if you want to ensure that you are represented and continue to be represented by a Democrat who's going to protect your rights in all of these matters, you need to go vote. So how do you approach the, the BIPOC community? Because obviously neither one of us belongs to this community. I think we can yeah. show up with empathy and active listening and, and mm-hmm. just really dive in and say, listen, we want to learn from you. But that is at times met with objection. How do you overcome that obstacle to truly get that, that community to understand that you are not there to cause harm? Yeah. Um, so it's funny you ask that. I So we have a local organization called the Village Initiative. It is Black run and started um, by a woman by the name of Jackie Williams. And the purpose of the institution or the organization um, was to create equity in education, particularly for minority students. And it's, in, and it's focused on our district solely. So WJCC is their district. They do an annual report. Um, they put in place tutors to help, you know, help these students that typically are minority students that come from, you know, a less... Um, a lower social economic background. Um, and so I had an introduction with them this past week. And so I'm on a panel of mostly um, black leaders um, trying to tell why I'm running and trying to tell why I want to represent them. And they asked some really, really poignant questions, tough questions. Um, and I- What's the toughest I, one that stands out to you that you remember? Um, well, so you know how you just said that as white presenting individuals, it's hard to talk on issues. You're you're more prone to want to just listen to the issues, be an active listener, learn from it. Um, when they directly questioned um, race, I found myself, and I don't want to say politically dodging, but like walking around the conversation and really focusing on like words like minority and 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 just being really cautious because I didn't want to offend. And I didn't want to feel like I was speaking over anybody because I don't, because I know enough black creators on TikTok that have, have given me insight and understanding on how, you know, they are the only ones that could tell their story. I can't do that. You know, I can be a support. I can be an ally. I can, you know, or, or, you know, I, I can, I can do all the things that I want to do to help with my privilege, but I can't tell their story and I can't understand their story on a personal level. And so it's hard for me to answer certain questions, knowing that, knowing that I'm never going to understand what it's like to um, come from a certain different demographic, um, having, you know, already having a struggle at home for whatever reason, and then having these added elements and layers of, of um, obstacles in education because of the things that we're dealing with at home that are subsequently created because of years and years of redlining and 
you know, oppression and, and, and segregation and, and all the things that have were born out of Virginia. I mean, Virginia is, you know, if you know anything about our history, we're, we're, there's we're some history. We're, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, there's some history here. And I live in it. I literally live in Colonial Williamsburg. So, um, so with that being said, you know, I, I was very careful about my words. And so one of the things, but when I was done, um, the Jackie Williams, who is the founder and, you know, CEO of the company, she said, I have to say, she goes, we've had many candidates come present themselves. She goes, you were the first one that really did an excellent job answering these hard questions. Because, um, and, and, and she said, um, and she said, and you, and you answered far like more in depth than a lot of people we've had before. And then my, and then my, the one woman that's also on the board, but she's white, but she's on the board. She sent me a message and she said, you did amazing. Like I, and, and I was like, thank you. I was like, I was just, you know, I was just being honest and trying to, you know, be real. And, and then she said, um, she said, but I think you need to really work on your messaging and you need to, you need to address race direct more directly. You know, I don't want you to feel like you're, t-. and so I responded to what, like, honestly, I almost want to read you the message, but I said, you know what, I think it's something that's going to be very hard for me and I'm going to have to work on it. I said, but I've been in a space for the last two years where I'm an active listener. I don't speak over people. And you're talking about experiences of other people that I don't have the, I don't have the, the, the intuitiveness or the understanding for. And so I struggle to be very direct with language when it says like, I know this is happening. Like, and, and she wrote back and she said, we need you in all this. And I was like, thank you for that. You know, um. When you condense this down and the many candidates that are running in various states and various districts, what do you want to cross-pollinate from that experience that they can adopt and just speak just better to these, to these particular communities that they're not members of? What is, right. what is your takeaway that you can teach them in that, in that position? Um, I think first and foremost, you need to meet the leaders of these communities. You need to find you need to find the leaders in these communities because they all have them. Um, I we have a community here in Williamsburg that is densely black population, um, and they don't feel reached. So the fact that I'm like, and I'm actually going to be going to the neighborhood this weekend and knocking on doors and handing out walk cards, but the the fact that someone's going to show up and say, "Hey, I'm here. Tell me what it is you need for me." And so it needs to not be a conversation of "I'm going to do this for you." It's a conversation of what can I do for you? What do you need from me? Because when you're going in kind of demanding or giving your expectation of what you think a community needs, you're you're not being an active listener and you're not going to be the leader that they want. You need to go in with the mindset that I'm here to find out how I can serve you. And does that make sense? Yeah. So basically you're going in not with a preconceived idea as to how you're going to solve their problems when you really know what their problems are, but with the intent of appreciative inquiry, so to speak, let me know what you need so I can be effective for you. Would that be a fair summary? Yes. Perfect. Yeah. Like exactly. Like this is the things like, Hey, I'm passionate about public education and ensuring that there's equity in education across the board. And that includes addressing the clear discrepancies and test scores in, um, you know, what we're seeing in suspension rates and disciplinary actions that are disproportionately harming black communities. I see that. I know that. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that I can talk about, but I need to know from you as a parent or a grandparent or someone who's living in this community, what is it I can do for you to make your life better right. existing here in district 71? Like what can I do? And that's, and that's going to be, 
So it's a combination of meeting the leaders of these communities, you know, building relationships, and then going into those communities directly and saying, I need you to tell me what I what you need from me, because I want to serve you. I don't want to serve my needs that I think you want. I need to know the needs that need to be met. So from from the cross-pollination idea, if you will, are there any other subjects, any other basically big tips, hints, uh, approaches that you want to cross-pollinate to others who are running for district positions, Senate positions, what have you? Um, educate yourself on as much as you can. And if you don't know it, find someone that does and help them get you educated. Um, I think sometimes we we go into this, you know, I know my I know my weaknesses. You know, I, I don't know a lot about the environmental aspect. Um, but that's going to be something that's important. I have a section of rural Virginia that's under my district that, you know, they have needs. They are there are farmers out there. There are people that are, um, you know, going to going to need to know that I'm going to protect the waterways that are in our community and, you know, things like that. So those so those aspects that you are not really like foundationally secure on and you just like, I know a little bit, find people in your community that that's their that's their thing. That's their jam. and. And, and source them out. Be like, hey, I want to be able to better serve this community. You live in this community. You're in this field. Tell me what I need to know to make sure I'm serving the needs of this community. So it, I would say basically, it, and it comes, I think it comes back to finding leaders in all kinds of different aspects, you know, not only within these individual communities, because every community we do, we see almost like a, a segregated group of people that kind of come together and they have their, they build their own communities and they have leaders within that community that reach out and you'll, and you'll meet them. I've been fortunate to go to a couple of local events and I'm meeting leaders from different groups in different neighborhoods. And you'll, you'll see these people that are kind of the standout from their, from their neighborhoods. Um, but you also need to find people that are um, with organizations that focus on environmental needs on like the village initiative focusing on equity and education finding people that focus on um food access for you know people that aren't getting you know that are um food insufficient and you know find all these little people because they exist and maybe they're not directly in your community but that's okay find one that's adjacent that maybe be in a local district that's neighboring and say hey you're doing really great things for community can you tell me a little bit about what you're doing and how maybe we can implement that in my district so it's really about finding these people within and even near your district and making sure that you're kind of, you're listening to them and you're finding out what's needed across the board. So very inclusive and collaborative politics rather than yes. exclusive. And I would just say upper deck politics that essentially marginalizes and continues to marginalize groups that really need representation, which, and you already spoke very complimentary, if you will, and very just nicely, if you will, about Amanda Batten. And I want to say that for one, I appreciate that about, about you because we have heard time and again from the other camp that it's immediately an ad hominem attack, right? We are playing essentially identity politics. And in various ways, I've heard you say that she's just a lovely person. We just don't agree on certain subjects and her voting records is, um, they are essentially not necessarily representative mm -hmm. of what we need. What is the difference? And how are you going to essentially overcome that incumbent? Um, I think for me, it's going to be reaching the rural women in this community, particularly. I do. Um, I'm both on the level of reproductive rights. 
as well as the public education sphere. Um, 13% of my voting base is in uh, an area called New Kent County. I actually lived there for 13 years myself. So I'm very familiar with how rural it is, kind of the way the community is made up. They have two elementary schools, one middle, one high school. Um, things like school choice would destroy their public education system. And I need them to understand that. I need, I need them to understand that currently the woman that's representing them is a big advocate and proponent of school choice, of about, a voucher system, of the idea of pulling roughly, you know, anywhere from seven to $9,000 per student out of taxes or out of the public education funding to reallocate to a private institution that has the right to turn your student away if they don't think they're, you know, their educational record's good enough, or maybe they've had some behavioral black marks and they don't want them representing their school. I, I just need to really um, knock on the doors of maybe, you know, people that may be more middle of the ground and may even be right wing um, and not typically someone that would want to have a conversation with me and say, hey, um, I know that I may not be, you know, the party that you you identify with, but can I tell you why um, I might be the person you identify with? Um, because they just need to understand that this is not, she's not a Republican one size fit all. You know, we've gotten to a point that we do see so much partisanship that when you vote for a Republican who's openly speaking on reproductive rights, who's openly speaking on school choice, you're going to get all of that in addition to your fiscally conservative ideas. Right. Right. So is it, do you, are you willing to maybe save a couple pennies in taxes? but risk having healthcare providers have their hands tied because, you know, there's a long place with a 15 week ban that gives no exceptions for fetal abnormalities or because someone just started reallocating roughly seven to $9,000 from every student out of your public education fund. And now you just lost five teachers and the class sizes now have five extra students in it and your kid's not getting a quality education anymore. It's really meeting them where they are and helping them see down the road of what a hyper-partisan Republican majority would look like for them and, and and letting them know, hey, again, I may not be the party that you agree with, but I may be the person you agree with right. if you want to hear me out. Which I think would be the ideal state, but no campaign comes without obstacles. What are your top three? Top three obstacles? The top three obstacles. Um, what, are you, what are you fighting? What do you need? Because you are very attuned to asking for other people's needs. So the question now is, what does Jess need? Um, Jess needs, okay. Um, Jess is going to need lots of feet on the ground uh, to start knocking on doors. So that's something I'm definitely going to be looking to need probably in the next, I'd say, six weeks, roughly. I'm starting to knock doors myself with my manager who I just hired on, um, as well as, you know, a handful of local volunteers. I've got a few like runners that have already been like, hey, I'll help you. Um, you know, it's great that I have that community. Um, but I'm going to need, like, I want to make sure that we get those touches. We want, I want to make sure these, the voter base feels like, hey, she's really, she's really putting people out here to make sure that we have conversations. And I really want them to be able to knock on the door, not only give them a piece of paper that says what, who I am and gives them an opportunity to go search me out on the internet, but also gives them a chance to say, hey, this is what she's about, but what is it you're looking for in a candidate? And sure. gives me some notation, you know, because the more people I have in place, those are the more opportunities for me to find out from a lot of different people what they need from me as a candidate. And I think that's vital. Um, the other one, obviously, unfortunately, is money. <laughs> always, um, you, know, um, you know, just, to, you know, I think sometimes people struggle to understand the financial aspect behind campaigning, but campaign managers are not cheap. 
Um, they expect a salary. Many of them come with a salary plus health benefits. Um, in the state of Virginia, that's pretty commonplace. Um, not to mention software. Uh, right now, I just signed a contract for both of my, um, you know, digital software for the state's digital software, which helps me with my financing, helps me upload all of my donor information to my reporting, you know, stuff for the state. And then I got another software that helps me with call time to start making my calls more efficient, helps me keep tally, makes me, gives me an option to like keep notes. So we're talking roughly thousand dollars a month just in software. Like that's wow. a monthly call. Yeah. It's, it's, um, you know, it, and then, and then we're, you know, you move down the road, you have to get yard signs, you have to get bumper stickers, you know, the walk cards I got, I ordered a, um, an intro order of a thousand, but the next order is going to be 10,000, you know? So it's this thing, like it's, Getting in people's faces, unfortunately, costs money. Um, I don't know how. I don't know if I'm really going to do TV ad. Uh, my campaign manager and the caucus seems to think I will. I'm. I'm not 100% sure. And even if I do, I feel like it's something I could probably create myself and then just pay for the ad time. But we'll 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 see where that goes. Um, but you know, someone that's really close to me in my camp um, recommends actually ad space with radio. So I mean, again, these are all things that just have a price. Um, but or a podcast, <laughs> I, I gladly will take podcasts um, for anybody locally. I think the only other ask is for people that want to um, sponsor me with a like a fundraising event. Um, those are great. And outside of them kind of providing a location and helping helping them and my campaign manager kind of doing the legwork of like, you know, creating the invite, creating the numbers, you know, all that, um, you know, that's something that is also on the horizon. So canvassing. Um, eventually phone banking that's kind of goes hand in hand um, money <laughs> and then um, and then yeah hosting events to help drive funds so I don't you know so you know we can get to the communities that I'm serving and say hey come meet me come come to this event come have a barbecue and like you know chat with me and you know pay $20 donation to the, to to come and you know visit and get free food and and find out a little bit about what I'm doing here so those types of things are what I'm really looking for. Well, in the essentially, next several you're running months. a small business is really what it yeah, is. Yeah, basically. Yeah, it yeah. is. It's like finding the money to keep the lights on yeah. kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Like most like most small businesses experience. So definitely not just one where you drive a product, which essentially is the outcome of your election, hopefully positive, of course. Yes. But also dealing with all the associated things i think that's that's what many people actually don't even think about what it takes to have yeah. the back office in order to show up organized on the front side i have only really two more questions if you will okay and one essentially is uh, sort of almost a typical interview question and the other one is the pointing ways if you will so the okay. second to last what is failure what is failure um i think failure is not trying <laughs> that's my opinion um I, I don't know. Uh, so one of my favorite people online were the Try Guys. Um, the concept of just doing something to see if you can do it. And if you can't, learning from it and doing it a little different next time. Um, or if you succeed, saying, hey, I tried something new and I and I succeeded at it. Um, yeah, so I think the definition of failure is not trying in the first place. Which, considering this is your second run, I think you are very much qualified to speak on that. Uh, <laughs> obviously, hopefully succeed in your second run here with uh, yes. Amanda Batten. It's looking it. very good. It's looking yeah. very good. I, I I'll, I'll be honest. Too. Yeah. And the last one, parting words, so to speak. You know, there's usually the, uh, you have a billboard, write a message on it. No, we're not going to do that. We're going to just simply ask, what is the one hill that Jessica Anderson is willing to die on? 
One hill that I'm willing to die on. That larger mm. life, that one thing that is absolutely non-negotiable from your political perspective. Yeah. Um, losing me. Uh, so I did hire a campaign manager and uh, that comes with some caveats. You know, uh, there's always this like um, idea that someone else might know how to do it better. Um, and not just campaign managers, but anybody in your sphere. I mean, when, when you run for office, everyone has an opinion. Everyone has advice, um, you know, coming from a million different directions. And so when it comes to running a campaign specifically, don't lose yourself. Like I, I've always spoken about integrity and transparency on my platform. If I've messed up, I publicly apologize. I take ownership of it. Um, if I'm doing something that is not working, I find a new way to do it that does work. Um, and so I'm, I hold myself accountable. So I, I, I'm, I steadfast on the fact that I'm not going to change the way I do things. I may not always do it right, but when I figure it out, I'll fix it. I'll, I'll redirect. Um, but yeah, just don't lose who you are in the process. Um, because, you know, I got here because of who I am. That's I mean, exactly. I got here. Um, I, I made the decision to do this because I created this platform on TikTok that drove me to further educate myself and dig deeper and deeper and deeper and meet more and more incredible communities and people. And that brought me to, to this moment. So, um, yeah. And it all started for me with a tinfoil hat. And all from um, the, the tinfoil hat's up there, by the way. Sitting <laughs> <laughs> um, behind me. Before we wrap this, plug yourself. Where can people find you? Uh, the website. How much money yeah, are you yeah. in the coffers? Uh, okay. Where, where do we yes, find yes, yes. you? Um, so Jessica Anderson for Virginia, F-O-R-V-A dot com is my website. Every one of my socials is on there. TikTok, Instagram. Um, there's literally at the top and the bottom of the website. You can just click on it and you can go to any of my socials. My Act Blue is at the very top, which is my donation website. I also have my P.O. Box on my website. So if you want to write a check instead, that is an option. I know a lot of people don't like, you know, dealing with the digital payment system and, but it is secure. Um, goals. I will be legitimately honest with you. I would love to raise another $20,000 in the next two weeks. I, and that sounds really far-fetched. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to stay hopeful to that because, uh, two weeks from today is the marking of the first quarter. So I submit all my financial documentation and upload it onto the Department of Elections for Virginia, which means within about two weeks after I do that, every single person in the world will have access to how much I raised. And that is gonna speak volumes. Sure. Um, if I show a real number that says, holy crap, this chick is like something to be reckoned with, um, that tells my opponent to be a little fearful. It tells the Virginia caucus like, hey, we, we've, we've made a good decision investing in her. Um, it tells, you know, people in Virginia that have money that love Democratic candidates and want to see good Democratic candidates in position think, oh, maybe I should maybe I should open my wallet to this young lady. Maybe she's got some some grit. So um, like I hate like the, the ask is the hardest part of this whole process. But, um, you know, really, this quarter is going to be um, a really big deal for how I'm viewed on the outside. So I'm, I, that's my hope. That's my hope right now. So in a nutshell, really, the financial contribution is a vote of confidence before the expression of the vote of confidence at the ballots. Yeah, it is. It is. And I think it's and it's and it's even a um, vote of confidence for support financially moving forward, because, again, these these bigger dollar donors who are just heavily Democratic, 
they tend to show up in droves when you start showing them, hey, she's bringing her money in by herself. Like she's doing this. And if she can do it on her own, we need to invest in her and help her get get to the end. So it's just a trend that you see. And it's something that I'm learning more and more being involved in this you know, process. But it is. It, it, people want to know that you're worthy of their investment. And if you're showing you're doing the work and you got the drive, um, they'll invest in you. And so, yeah, that's where I'm that's where I'm at right now. Two weeks to go, 20 grand and <laughs> an election coming up. And Jess, thank you so much for taking thank the time. You. Greatly appreciate yes, it. We'll get this out me. and uh, we'll track you with your 630,000 TikTok subscribers <laughs> and 30-some thousand on, I believe, uh, Twitter, if I read that right, and 40-some thousand on Instagram. So you're around and you're definitely here to stay. So thank you so, so much for coming on. Thank you for having me.